Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Romans in chapter 1. And as we go through this season of transition, as we continue to process the news you've all just heard, I want it to be business as usual in this business as usual in this pulpit, opening up the Word of God with the help of the Spirit of God to the hearts of the people of God, and all for the glory of God. And in particular. With four weeks left, there are lots of five-point sermon series you can have as a Reformed pastor, but there's not many four-point sermon series. So, uh, I'm going to, I want to remind you of some of the great verities and certainties of the Christian faith, that what we have sought to do together from this pulpit through the pews and out into the city of Greensboro, I have absolute confidence that Kyle and the elders and the deacons will continue to do in this place as long as the sun shines. And we are going to keep the main thing the main thing. And this morning, I want to draw your mind to the gospel of God in chapter 1 of Paul's epistle to the Romans. I'm going to read this together. And I'm going to read from the New King James Version and you'll notice there are some slight differences as you make it through. That's just the, the textual uh, traditions of, from our Bible translations. But uh, the great, as you look at all of the different threads, and there are um, 200,000 texts and fragments of text that can come down to us, um, what strikes us is the great similarity that we can have absolute confidence that we have the Word of God whatever translation we use. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. 
So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of our God endures forever. In the book of Romans is Paul's magnum opus, and Kyle and your elders are going to be looking at it this summer in Sunday school. I don't want to steal their thunder, but I do want to use it at least this morning to unpack some of the verities and certainties of the Christian faith. It's, it's Paul's summary of the gospel, the great convictions that fired his heart and that drove him out like a spiritual canon to preach the gospel as far as the sun would shine. And you know the context of this book. Paul is writing to the Roman church. He's hoping to move. he go to there and use it as a base of operation. He's never been to Rome before. He's explaining why he's never been there, this significant city in the church of the Lord Jesus. But he wants to use Rome as a base of operations to bring the gospel to Spain. And we don't know whether or not he ever succeeded in that goal. But Paul here is underscoring for us in this passage, as he begins his explication of the gospel, why the gospel matters so much, why it's the central thrust of all Paul's preaching, and why it will remain the central thrust of this church while God keeps us faithful. Before we are a Presbyterian church, before we are a Reformed church, we are a gospel church. We center around. It's the rallying call of our pulpit. We proclaim the gospel of God in the Word of God, and here's why. Paul says there are three reasons why the gospel must remain the central message of every true church and every true preacher. First of all, it's supernatural authority. Secondly, it's historical accuracy. And thirdly, it's practical necessity. Let's work through those points together this morning. First of all, it's supernatural authority. Notice verse 1. Paul says, Paul, and a a bondservant of Jesus Christ— called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That's interesting. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not man's gospel. It's first and foremost the gospel of God. The gospel belongs to God the Father. It comes from Him. The gospel of God, which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the gospel of God that contains the promises of God revealed before in the Old Testament, all the promises God made, and now kept these promises in the New Testament 
That's really a summary of the whole Bible. If you're visiting here this morning and you look at this Bible and you think, what's this Bible about? 66 books, over 40 authors written over 1,400 years, three continents, three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And you think, what's it all about? It's about one central message, how God saves sinners. The Old Testament is the promise of salvation. The promises God made, the New Testament articulates the promises God kept. Promises made and kept, that's the message of the Bible. And Paul says the gospel is the gospel of God. It was never man's word about God, never men grouping in the darkness trying to explain their spiritual experience like the blind man feeding or feeling the elephant, right? No, that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is a herniation from eternity into time. It's God Himself speaking good news to a world lost in darkness. It's not man's word about God. It's God's word about Himself. It speaks of Him, His wisdom. How can God be just and merciful? God is the judge of all the earth. He can't turn a blind eye to sin. If He doesn't deal with sin, who will? He doesn't decisively speak against any sin and all sin, who will? Who will stand in God's stead to challenge evil and darkness? God must be just. He must be just, or He ceases to be who He is. And yet, God's also merciful. How can God be just and merciful? And the gospel explains the wisdom of God, the inscrutable wisdom of God, that justice and mercy can kiss at the cross of Christ. It also reveals God's heart, His love for His people, His extraordinary generosity, the lengths He would go to save your soul and your soul and your soul and your soul, He will send His Son, His Jesus for you, the altogether lovely one, the fairest among 10,000, the lily of the valley, the bright morning star. God will send Jesus out to Him, out for you, the one about whom God said, let all the angels of God worship Him. God will take Jesus and send Him down to become flesh, and then to become sin, and then to become cursed for you. Michael Horton said, the gospel is not just good instructions, not a good idea, not even good advice. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of God. It belongs to Him. It comes from Him. It speaks of Him, and it brings us back to Him. It's designed to call the lost sons and daughters of Adam back to God. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, your problem is the essential problem of all men. It was my problem before God saved me. You've got a God-shaped hole in your heart, and there's nothing else that can fill it. Your heart, God made you for Himself, and your heart will always be restless. 
until you find your rest in God. So it's supernatural authority. It comes from eternity into time. Then secondly, the gospel matters because of its historical accuracy. The gospel of God, Paul says, which he promised through his prophets long ages ago concerning his Son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And notice the two words, according. According to the flesh, according to the Spirit of holiness, according to the flesh of man, according to the Spirit of God. Paul is deliberately kind of paralleling the two different sides of the coin of the person of Jesus Christ. All of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. He's God's Son, but He's also Mary's boy child. He's stressing the humanness of Christ, His weakness born of the seed of David. Jesus the man, the little boy who grew up in the carpenter shop in Nazareth, who would clean up all the sawdust at the end of the day, sweep the floor, and hang up his father's tools. That's part of his, his nature. But uh, on the other side, behind the scenes, there's the divine nature. He's not, he's not hanging up his father's tools in heaven. He's hanging the moon and the sun and the stars and the solar systems, creating the universe with his word. This universe didn't come by an explosion, it's too fine-tuned. You know that. It's the, it, it exists because of the utterance of Jesus Christ. And He's not sweeping sawdust away. He's preparing to sweep the wicked away and all of the evil in this world like one wipes a plate at the end of a meal. He grew up praised by human parents, as Mary would say to his brothers, James and Judas and Jesus and Jude. Why can't you be more like Jesus? And they hated him for it. They, 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 you can get the sense as, as Christ interacts with his earthly brothers, because they were all converted after his death, you remember, when he appeared to them. But they hated him for it. They, they resented him. He was the goody tissues. Praised by men on earth, but in heaven the angels, the archangels, the seraphim, the cherubim, saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, notice these two aspects of Christ's being, His character, are historical realities. He stepped into time from eternity at a specific time of history, maybe 4 AD. There was a time when He stepped into this world, and there was a time He stepped out of the pages of history in His resurrection, but they are historical realities. As B.B. Warfield says, the doctrines of, of Scripture are historical facts, and it is because they are historical facts 
that they are the doctrines of our holy religion. Liberal theologians like to fantasize that legends over time, you know, you had Christ the man, and then gradually Paul and other people began telling stories about Jesus whose smiling eyes could make a blind man see. Well, when did that happen? Because you go back as far as you can in human history, all the way back to the, to the 30s, and you have even liberal, even um, Bart Ehrman, the, the atheist now and professor at Chapel Hill, even he will admit that 1 Corinthians 15, those famous words, are representative of a creed that goes back to the early 30s, the years after Christ died. And Paul says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And even Barriaman says, that reads like a creed. Paul's cutting and pasting it out of the Corinthian liturgy, but it goes back right to the beginning. You go back as far as you can in church history, and you never find anything other than a risen Christ the historical reality of His birth and the historical reality of His death and the historical reality of His resurrection. And that matters, do you see, because Jesus because of Easter, as Philip Yancey said, it's Easter that makes Him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to His extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from His sayings. Moreover, Easter means that Jesus Christ must be loose out there somewhere. That's wonderful. Christ isn't trapped in the pages of the Bible. He's certainly not trapped in a tomb in the ancient Near East. He's wild, a loose out there like a lion ruling the universe far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, which is the very point Paul's making, the contrast between the flesh and now with power. He's demonstrated to be God's Son with all of the radiance of His Father's glory and the express image of His nature, far above all the universe, ruling, reigning, sustaining, and upholding the universe. And He has come, and He has died, and He has risen. He shall return again. And so do you see There's no hiding from Christ. You understand that? Children, teenagers, maybe some of you are doing right that now. You're, you're hiding from Jesus. It's like when you were maybe three years of age, and you'd go to your papa's house, and you'd play hide-and-seek. And your papa would close his eyes and count to a hundred very quickly, and you'd hide. And then you'd say, Papa, we're ready. You can't find us. And papa would go looking. And it was a charming game, and you'd be hiding behind this little sapling in the front yard, little baby crepe myrtle, and you'd be kind of standing like this with your nose pointing out one side of the, of the crepe myrtle and your other nether regions out the other end, and you said, Papa, you can't see me. And he'd go along with the game. I don't know where you are, and he'd be walking about looking in the bushes and, and pretending he didn't know where you were when all the while he knew exactly where you were. And maybe you're hiding from Jesus this morning teenagers. Maybe you're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, holding down what you know to be true. And Jesus says to you, I know where you are, 
I know who you are. I know what you've done. You might fool your parents some of the time. You don't fool me any of the time. And there's no refuge from me. There's only refuge in me. Only two questions matter. What will you do with me, Jesus says? And what will I do with you? Those are the only two questions that matter. And how you answer the one will determine how I one day answer the other. Will I come to be your Savior, who was judged in your place for, my sin, for your sins, or will I come to be your judge? Do you despise the riches of my goodness and my forbearance and my long-suffering? Do you not know, Jesus says, that the goodness of my Father is designed to lead you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, will you really treasure up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God when my Father comes and I come to render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God." Don't hide from me, Jesus says, come to me. It's an historical certainty one day I will come for you. Let me come as your Savior and not merely as your judge. Which brings me to the third point. Why is the gospel so important? Well, because of its divine authority, because of its, its historical accuracy, and thirdly, because of its practical necessity. Paul wants to preach the gospel. In Rome. Why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's the practical necessity for the gospel? It's the only place to escape the wrath of God. It's the only place to experience the power of God for salvation, and it's the only place to receive the righteousness of God. Let's think about that quickly to bring this sermon to conclusion. The gospel is the only place to experience, or to escape, sorry, the wrath of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and there are fours coming afterwards explaining why he's not ashamed of the gospel. The last one is the one we'll consider first. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the, for, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. How do men suppress the truth? But Paul says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them, even his eternal attributes, so that they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. God is universally angry with human beings' constant, willful, and deliberate efforts to deny what they know is true. Atheists may like to say they don't believe in God. Well, I have a message for you. God says He doesn't believe in atheists. There are none anywhere. God has revealed Himself with crystal clarity through the things that are made, the majesty of the cosmos, the intricacy of a hummingbird. Though your heart regulates your blood pressure, you stand up and all your blood pulls in your legs, and you don't faint because you're the veins in your legs immediately contract, and the heart immediately starts beating faster. The regulation is incredibly complicated, and it reveals the glory and the wisdom of the Creator. And Paul says, God is universally angry against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Unrighteousness, people who live as if they were the standard and thought nothing about the standards of righteousness that God has revealed. Later on, chapter 2, you have to talk about Gentiles who do not have the law, yet they do the deeds that are contained in the law, and they show the witness of the law of God in their hearts, that God has written His law upon our hearts, the conscience. And ungodliness, we live as if God didn't matter. That's what ungodliness means. And the lifestyle that comes out of it. I was talking to a college student recently, and they said, you know, they're just overwhelmed by the meaninglessness of college students' lives. All they want to do is have sex, get drunk, take drugs. And it's meaningless. And weightless. And I, I said to them, that's the problem, you see. Sex is one of the most precious parts of human relationships. And if you treat it as worthless, that does something to you. You can't treat sex as worthless and meaningless. It's a moment, momentary pleasure without becoming the kind of person who treats precious things as worthless. And you do that, and there's a very, very short step. And by very short, I mean no step at all between actually coming worthless yourself, weightless and lifeless and rootless like chaff. And Paul says, God is universally angry with that habit of all men. All of us have that by nature, right? Not just you, me, everyone. He's angry not just with democratic ungodliness. He's angry with Republican ungodliness and unrighteousness. He's angry with all unrighteousness, 
not just the ungodliness of the 99% who live in flyover country. He's angry with the ungodliness of the 1% who live in Martha's Vineyard. He's angry not just against Russian ungodliness and unrighteousness, but against Ukrainian ungodliness and unrighteousness. Not just Gentile ungodliness, but Jewish ungodliness. Not just irreligious, unchurched ungodliness, but he's angry against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women and boys and girls in the church who don't trust in Christ and try to medicate their guilty conscience by doing religion. If I can just be good enough, obey the law enough, sing heartily enough, then I can avoid the cross and the conviction that I am a helpless sinner who needs to be saved. And not just non-denominational ungodliness and unrighteousness, but God is angry against Presbyterian ungodliness and unrighteousness. Not just yours, but mine. And there's only one place in heaven where you can escape the wrath of God, and it's in and through the gospel. And a Savior who's willing to receive that wrath in your room and in your stead, to join His spiritual bank account with you and take all of your debts as His own, and as we'll see, to give all of His credits to you. It's the only place to escape the wrath of God. It's the only place to experience the salvation of God. For Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. That's the essential message of the gospel. It's it's so central when God sent His Son into this world, He called Him Jesus, which means Savior for He will save His people from their sins. And the power is His. That salvation comes with power to save us from what sin has done to us. Sin has left us dead, the Bible says. Not just sick, not just a bit confused, not mad, but dead. Paul, remember Ephesians 2, for you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you walked according to the course of this world. He's, I think, using the illustration of a, of a river, a toxic, polluted river flowing downstream. And human beings are dead in it, like dead fish being swept down a river full of unrighteousness and sexual immorality, and wickedness, and covetousness, and maliciousness, full of envy, and murder, and strife, and deceit, and evil-mindedness, where men are whisperers, and backbiters, and haters of God, and vile, and proud boasters, and inventors of evil things, and disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And this toxic river is flowing down, and mankind are being swept along with it. And behind it all, there's the devil according not just to the course of this world, but according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. It's been said before, the sinner's prayer is, I did it my way. But the devil's rubbing his hands as he looks at America and Britain and the the nations of the world and goes, oh no, you're doing it my way. 
but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, He made us alive. It was His power. It was His doing. He took the power of the gospel, and it did something in our hearts and changed us from death to life. That's the the great difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's not something we have done. It's something God has done. Yes, I trusted Him, but I would never have trusted Him if He had not come and touched me with power to take the darkness away. And this power, it's available power. Did you hear that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for everyone who believes. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who runs 10 marathons back to back, does 50,000 pull-ups like David Goggins in under 24 hours, does an Ironman, and then climbs Mount Everest naked. No, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. Let that word sink into your head. It's a little word, but it's as big as the world. For everyone who believes, who entrusts their soul to Jesus to save them. Now, I want to warn you, young people, and older people too, Lots of people know they should trust Jesus for their Savior. It's one thing to know that you should trust Christ to be your Savior. It is quite another thing to actually trust Him. And I've heard so many people in my my life of ministry where they'll say, oh, I believe in Jesus. So does the devil. And they'll say, I believe in Jesus, but they live like the devil, right? Drinking and drugging and sleeping around, and and they they, they come to church on Saturday night or on Sunday morning, and they they take a little piece of bread and a little sip of wine and think that does it. But let me tell you, if you are not trusting Jesus to be your Lord, don't kid yourself. You are not trusting Him to be your Savior. If you aren't trusting Christ to tell you what you can and can't do with your body—now, nobody does that perfectly, of course. We're all sinners— But as Pink said, nobody's perfect is the saint's greatest complaint, and it's the hypocrite's cushion. The saint, nobody's perfect. Oh, I wish, Lord. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I will not to do, that I find I practice. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the saint. Hypocrite is lulling himself to sleep on the devil's lap. Oh, nobody's perfect. Everybody sins. Even Pastor Stuart sins. It's okay. You don't take half of Christ. He is Savior and Lord. Now, we're not saved by submitting to His Lordship. That's very, very important. But you're not saved without submitting to His Lordship. We come to Him naked, empty, dead sinners with dirty hands, and we empty, we we give nothing to Him but our sin, and we take everything from Him. But when a man does that, or a woman, it changes him. He can no longer look at the world the same way and sin the same way and friendships the same way and sex the same way and entertainment the same way. It changes him. Has it changed you?
The gospel, then, is the only place to escape the wrath of God. It's the only place to experience the power of God to salvation. And it's, lastly, the only place to receive the righteousness of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You may remember that phrase, tortured Luther as a monk. Luther became a monk to try and monk his way to heaven. And he said, if anybody could monk his way to heaven, I was that man, right? But he came across this, as he was translating the Bible into German, he comes across this phrase that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and it tortured him. He thought, that's terrible. That's like clean paint on a dirty wall. It, it, it reveals my sin. And the more he thought about that, the more he resented God. He said, love God. No, sometimes I hate Him. I saw Christ, he said, as a consuming judge who is simply looking at me to evaluate me and to visit affliction upon me. And then came that moment when Luther realized that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel wasn't the righteousness of God to condemn him, but it was actually the righteousness of God credited to him. Right? Because there's two halves to the gospel. On the one half of the gospel, Christ dies in our place for our sins. He pays for all of our debts, like a husband and a wife joint bank account, right? The debts of the one become the debts and responsibility of the other, and that's the cross. But it doesn't stop there. If that was all the gospel was, you'd be left better but still bankrupt. You'd be left with a zero bank account. But the gospel actually is even better than that, having all your sins forgiven and being a big fat zero. The gospel actually credits, imputes, wires all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ into your account. It's yours. And that is the, that, that is the spiritual financial resources with which you deal with God, not your righteousness, not even the righteousness of the man Christ Jesus, but the righteousness of God the Son, because the person behind the man is God the Son. And that leads and lends a weight that is as big as God to the righteousness God has imputed to your account. You are better now than Adam would be had he never sinned. Because the best Adam could give you would be the righteousness of a man. You're better than the angels. They have the righteousness of angelic spirits thousands of years. You, Christian, have imputed into your account the righteousness of God the Son, whose food and whose drink was to do the will of the one who sent him. He could look at the Pharisees and say, which of you convinces me of sin? Even more, he could go to the 
father and say, Father, look at all of your commandments. You know all things. Nothing is hidden from you. Can you convict me of sin? And the father has nothing to say. But let all the angels of God worship him. And that is the righteousness. And Luther said, it broke into my mind, and I realized for the first time that my justification, my station before God, is not established on the basis of my own naked righteousness, which will always fall short of the demands of God. Rather, it instead rests solely and completely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which I must hold on to by a trusting faith. And when I understood that, for the first time in my life, he said, I understood the gospel. The first time. And I looked, and behold, the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. The just shall live by faith. Justification by faith alone, God is holy and I am not, is the article upon which the church stands or falls, and I negotiate it, I negotiate it with no one because it is the gospel. Or as Isaiah said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And I want to say with absolute conviction I know that Kyle and the elders will keep and hold this. As we look at the decades and centuries that lie ahead of this church until Christ comes, the rallying call of this church will always be the gospel. Beware of any pastor, any preacher, any leader who encourages you to rally around anything else, to focus upon anything else, and who preaches anything else except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Anything else comes into the center of the church will push the gospel out of the church. And this woke gospel that has taken over so many churches, it's amazing when the social gospel takes center of the church, the blood gospel is pushed out. And one of the greatest of the many encouragements you've been to me here is that the good folk who've come in from Winston and elsewhere, where the social gospel has infected so many Presbyterian churches, they came in and said, it is wonderful to hear the power of the blood gospel again. The gospel does not exist to rescue men from the injustice of men. As bad as it is to get what you don't deserve from other human beings, the gospel exists to rescue you from a much bigger problem, not to rescue you from the injustice of man, but to rescue you from the justice of God.
and it's a message to live trusting, to die embracing. January the 1st, 1937, J. Gresham Machen, one of the great fathers of American Presbyterianism, lay, lay dying in Dakota, Bismarck, Dakota. He'd been up preaching in the cold winter, and he had a cold that settled in his chest, became pneumonia, then luber pneumonia, and he's dying. And, and his, in his last hours, he sent a text to his best friend, Professor John Murray. And the text said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And he's speaking about exactly this thing. The passive obedience is Christ dying on the cross. That's this foundation. But the active obedience is the perfect life of Christ imputed to me by faith. And his dying thought was, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Jesus. No hope without it. Why do you need the gospel? It's supernatural authority. It's historical accuracy, but it's practical necessity. It's the only place where you can escape the wrath of God, experience the salvation of God, and receive the righteousness of God, whatever series says. Come to me, Jesus says. Some of you for the first time. Some of you for the millionth time. <laughs> Lord, have mercy on this phone, this miserable sinner. Always trust Siri to ruin a good sermon. But seriously, though, isn't it wonderful to have such a Savior? And it's been the highlight of my ministry, it really has, to preach Jesus to people who receive Him so gladly and so willingly and so warmly. I know I can say anything from the pulpit as long as it's in the Bible. And that means more to me than you'll ever rule. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for these brothers and sisters, O oh God. I thank you for the great privilege it's been to preach to them and to pastor them these years. And I pray, O oh God, you will raise up a man to build and what the elders and I and Kyle have sought to build here. Raise up a man, O oh God, with double the spirit and double the energy and double the faith and double the hope and double the love and double the tongue to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ that this congregation will know that the power is not in me or any other man, but it's in you and the gospel till the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen.